Psalm 16. I told you that we're going to be walking through the Psalms, picking out a couple, a series in the Psalms, but we're not going to be able to hit all of them. There are 150. So we did Psalm 1, and we did Psalm 2, and now I'm jumping all the way to Psalm 16. There are a lot of good ones that we skipped over, but we're going to land today on Psalm 16. And I've told you how the Psalms are, are great at, at helping us connect with all that we're feeling, our emotions, what we're experiencing, our Lives are all over the place. And the Psalms are a great picture to see that because the Psalms are, are all over the place. And the Psalms are songs. So we see God's people dealing with their emotions and being all over the place, their, their ups and downs and their feelings and their experiences through their relationship with God, even through a rejoicing, even through a song. And so today we're going to land at Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is one of those where David, King David, is confident in his relationship with God. He is confident that God is his God, that God is his Father, God is his Lord, he knows God, and that that is good for him. He is confident that his life is blessed, that his life has goodness in it. He is confident of who he is, not because of who he is. But he is confident of who he is because of who God is. Psalm 16 is one of those. Psalm 16 is one of those that causes us to say, yes, that's, that's what I want. I want to be like David in Psalm 16. That's what it does. Psalm 16 is one of those that causes us to be mindful of all the goodness we have. All the blessing in our life. I recently had a conversation with somebody here in Fairdale. And their conversation was, you know, things just aren't going the way I had thought they would. You've heard that before, right? I just can't seem to be happy. I know this, and they tell me some things they know. And I know this, and they tell me some more things that they know. And they say, well, I know that Life's not always a bed of roses. Life's not always cupcake city. But I just thought I would be happier than this. Perhaps you've said that before. If not, I know you've heard people say things like that before. I had that conversation just recently with somebody. And it got me wondering if they knew that there's a deeper happiness than things that make us happy. Amen. There are things that make us happy. Now, don't let me trick y'all. There are. But they don't last. And they're not as happy as when God satisfies your soul. I know people who have more and are less happy and I know people who have less and are more happy. Matter of fact, some of the most joyful people that I know don't have very pleasant circumstances. And some of the most miserable people, miserable people that I know, this is the great paradox of being worldly, some of the most miserable people that I know are those that seem to have the most or be the most blessed. 
Y'all, the key is God. And I want you to know that. And I want you to believe that with everything in you. And I want you to start adjusting your lives to make that real. I want you to say, I'm going all out to be joyful, to be happy, to please myself through being close to God. This is what Psalm 16 is all about. Please read with me. Only 11 verses in Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11, the last verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David was in a good spot when he wrote this one, wasn't he? If you read the Psalms, you will find David in lots of not-so-good spots. You will see him undone and broken. You will see him mad. You will see him frustrated. You will see him searching, crying out. You will see him lonely. But here at Psalm 16, he is focused. And I like that because it's good for me because there are times when I'm not focused and there are times when I am focused and I want to be focused. Let's walk through this. It begins with a prayer. Really just the first verse is really all the prayer there is in Psalm 16, but it's a good one. David says, preserve me, O God. David understands that he's in a good spot right now, but that may not continue. Today may be good for us, but tomorrow may not be. 2015 may be a good year, but 2016 may not. This season may be one that you love, but the next may not. David has this in mind, and he says, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. David believes that his lasting, his keeping, his staying is not dependent on himself. And for many of you, you've never heard this before. You think your staying is dependent only on you, and it is. Dependent on you to some extent but it is also dependent on the grace of God, His love for you, His keeping of you, and His sovereign hand. And David knows this, and so he prays, preserve me. Preserve me. I want to stay here. I want to be in this position. Next month, our church will celebrate 99 years as a church. First Baptist Fairdale began in 1916. Will we make it another 99 years? It's a neat thought. Can you imagine if we're going to be a church in 2114? That's 99 years. That's a long way away, right? None of us will be here, except for maybe Liliana if she lives to be 99, because she's only four months right now. 
What would it take for us to get there? Some preservation, right? It would take some preservation. Well, let's get beyond our church. What about your family? Will your name be here? Will there be greens with the eel and the end of green roaming the earth? Will there be greens in Fairdale in a hundred years? Let me ask it this way. Will there be greens that love Jesus in a hundred years? Will my grandkids love Jesus? Will they be soul winners for God? Will they want their family to know the glory of God? Will they read the Bible to their kids at night and pray with them? What will it take for that to happen? One of my favorite things in all of life is to turn the TV off, even in the middle of a ball game, and say, come on, let's read the Bible. There's so many good kids' Bibles and kids' books these days. It's just awesome. We'll sit down. I got a new one this week. It's got ten chapters in it. I got it on Thursday. We've already read the whole thing. It's that good. We just sit down on the couch and read it, and they look at the pictures, and they ask me questions. It's awesome. Will that be happening a year from now? Will that be happening a hundred years from now? What do we do to preserve that? When we see ourselves in what we know is what we're supposed to be, how do we make sure that happens? How do I make sure that this lasts? How do we make sure that a hundred years from now, whoever is preaching in this spot, that they still believe that the Word of God is the authority? David knows, preserve me, O God. God, keep me right here. He cries out and says, preserve me. God, make me last. Don't let me fall away. Don't let me change. When I was in college, I heard a preacher say, write down your ten closest friends that are committed followers of Jesus. He said in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, look at that list again. See if they still are. And I don't remember what number he said, but he said statistics show that something like half of them won't be. Not fringe people, that your most committed ones. Who are the 10 people in your life that you say, man, they are Christian, strong Christians. Give them some time and they won't be anymore. What's it take to be preserved? I know people that used to be here and used to love to encourage me and hear the Word and the Word work in their lives and now they're not. What's it take to be preserved? David knows that it is God. And he cries out to God, God, preserve me. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. God, don't let me fall away. Don't let me fall into sin. Guard me. Protect me. And then from that attitude, in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. And I have no good apart from You. I want to tell you that key to being preserved by God is you keeping the truth of what God teaches you about yourself. And at the very moment that you start thinking, there's some good in me, guess who you no longer need to preserve you? God. David will be preserved by God because he has a very clear understanding of who he is. I'm telling you about King David, who we know to be the best king that the Old Testament had. 
We know David to be the one who God says is a man after my own heart. What a compliment from the Creator to a man. (coughs) David, in many ways, is a hero to us. And David says confidently here, I'm telling you this, God. You are my Lord and I have no good apart from You. I want to ask you if you ever pray that. Do you ever remind yourself that? Do you begin your prayers with that? And before you're pointing the finger or being judgmental to anybody in the community or on the news or whatever, have you reminded yourself that you are no better than any of them? You have no good apart from God. What a statement. It seems to go hand in hand that the person that would pray, preserve me, O God, is the person who says, there's nothing good in me. But the person who thinks there's some good in me rarely would pray, preserve me. Maybe they say to themselves, I just got to keep on keeping on. Can't give up. Can't can't stop. Got to do it. Got to do it. I got to do it. They lose their joy. They become kind of like a, a legalistic. They become kind of like a Pharisee. And it's more about what they're doing. These are the Christians that we know that are bitter, that are upset, that are frustrated, that have lost their joy or their freedom. They've lost their relationship with Jesus. They've lost the perspective. They've lost the big picture of God and His love for us. They've lost the gospel and the forgiveness of sins that we have. Next thing you know, they're running around holding on to all these truths. They don't have the Spirit of God about them. See, David here says, You're my Lord. I have no good apart from You. John MacArthur says that what David is saying here is that, listen to this, his whole well-being is entirely dependent on you, God. I want to ask you if you're there in your faith. My whole well-being is entirely dependent upon God. What a statement. You remember when I said at the beginning, people who have the worst circumstances but they have joy, and people who have great circumstances but they don't? If the circumstances aren't determining your well-being, yet God is, you're in a good place. David tells us this. A declaration, you are my Lord. The person who is saved, Romans 10.9 teaches us, is the person who confesses God to be their Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Christians are those that confess Jesus as Lord. Meaning, we know Him as Lord. We recognize Him as Lord. We have bowed our knee to Him as Lord. We have surrendered our lives to Him as Lord. We have submitted to Him as Lord of our lives. David says, you are my Lord. Preserve me, O God. I'm taking refuge in you. I don't have any good apart from you. Now, if you and I were to look at David's life, we would say several things that we think are good about him. I'm not telling you that you all necessarily aren't good people. You do lots of good things. Your lives are full of good deeds. The Bible teaches us that compared to God, nobody is good. Jesus pointed this out when the rich young ruler said, good teacher to him. Jesus said, why are you calling me good? Jesus was seeking to understand from the rich young ruler if he understood the goodness of humanity. There is no human that is good, not even one, Romans 3, Psalm 14 tells us. I wanted to preach that Psalm 14 just five Psalms back because it says what Paul says in Romans 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one, nobody that seeks after God, nobody that does good, Psalm 14, but we skipped over it. Paul quotes that in Romans 3. What it means is that compared to God, we have fallen short of the glory of God. You and I are not good in the sense that God is completely good. We are sinful people that do good things. God is only good. He never sinned. 
David is aware of this. David is a good man, good king. Yet he's a sinner. And so his understanding is, Lord, I have no good apart from You. Again, his well-being is entirely dependent upon you. I want to encourage you here today to be a person who realizes your well-being should not consist of things. Don't do that. Don't be the person that makes your joy or your well-being dependent on whether you have a, a new car or not. Let your well-being be dependent upon God. Allow God to take care of everything else as He grows you and teaches you. So many of your frustrations and struggles, and you would even admit this, but you're just not ready to change from it, so many of your frustrations and struggles and really your miseries are because you will not surrender yourself to God and say, God, have your way with me. Some of y'all would be so free if at the end of the service today during this last song, you were maybe to not even stand up but sit down and bow your head and say, God, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. My soul's not at peace and my soul's not happy when I keep trying to find it in other things. Some of y'all need to bow your head. All of us need to know that our well-being can't be in things. Verse 3, and this is Beautiful. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Isn't that the attitude and characteristic of a godly person? Do you see what he's doing? When he looks at himself, nothing good in me. When he looks at the other Christians he knows, the other believers, the saints, man, y'all are, are awesome. Y'all are excellent. Y'all delight me. Isn't that cool? You see that? That's the way God's people are to treat people, church. Instead, we've twisted it. You think more highly of yourself than you do other people. That's arrogance. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus made Himself lower than every person. Jesus would run into prostitutes or drunks and treat them better than He did Himself. It's awesome how He was. This is what David's saying. Oh God, preserve me and you would take refuge. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Those other saints in the land, man, they're the awesome ones. They're the excellent ones. They bring delight to my soul. Have you ever told somebody that? Have you ever looked around and surveyed the landscape of Fairdale or Louisville or your workplace and saw somebody that's still believing in Jesus? They're holding on to hope. And you just said... You're excellent. You're awesome. I'm glad that you work here at the place I work. Keep it up. Don't lose the faith. Stay close to Jesus. Cling to the Word. Press on. Have you ever said to that person at work, because listen, isn't it true that all of us Christians are kind of a, a head case and we're always up and down? That's true about all of us. Have you ever said to that other Christian that you know down the street, they don't, you don't even know what church they go to. They're a different denomination. Have you ever just said to them, hey, you're such a blessing. There's a family in our street, and we're not real close to them. We've never been to their house. They've never been to our house. But they're a Christian family, I know that. They take a walk almost every day. I see him drive his car, getting home from work. He's usually in some clothes like this. 
About 15 minutes later, he comes by in basketball shorts and a t-shirt. Wife, son, and daughter, they're going for a walk. Like every day. They're a blessing to me. I know he's got bills to pay and a yard to mow. I know he's got ball games to watch. I'm sure he's got friends to go hang out with, right? He's got stuff he needs to do. He's got a phone to look at for hours. But he's also got kids and a wife and a family. And he prioritizes them. I'm not talking about once a week. I'm talking every day. You could go ask my kids right now who I'm talking about, and they'll tell you. Every day they do it. They're a blessing to me. They are excellent, aren't they? They are awesome. David, viewing himself, wanting preservation, cries out to God, I'm, there's no good in me, God. You're my Lord. But when he looks at the others, he says, y'all are the excellent ones. I love this. Church, I want this to be our attitude. I want us to make Fairdale a better community while thinking to ourselves, we need the preservation of God. We want the, 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 the town around us, the people around us, and the neighborhoods around us to be better off because of us as we lift them up, as we make them better, as we improve them, as we help them, as we make them healthier in whatever way, never thinking more of ourselves, but instead thinking lower of ourselves and our dependency upon God. Oh, preserve me, oh God. What a shame it would be for us to have this pastor right now that's 35 and a wife and five kids. And for the last, you know, 12 plus years, things have been going well here. We're kind of building on that. The Lord's working. But by the time I'm 45, I'm done with it. What a shame. What if when I'm 45, I decide to leave my wife? Leave the kids. How would you feel about that? Wouldn't it hurt? That's what we don't want. This is what David doesn't want. He says, preserve me, O God. Don't let that happen to me. In you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you're my Lord and I have no good apart from you. And then when he looks around, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. When the Bible says the word saints, it's referring to the people of God. Saint is a word that means holy. So when David says he sees the saints, he's referring to God's people and viewing them as a holy people because they're close to God. Verse 4. Now he's going to look at those who aren't the people of God. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David says, I see those that don't know you, God, and I don't want anything to do with them and their lifestyles. The drink offerings that are not the, the, the proper offerings, the sacrifices and the obedience according to you, God, are not the ones they're supposed to be doing. I don't want to be involved with those. Their names that they sacrifice to, I don't even want them to be on my lips. I don't want to be caught saying that. I don't want anything to do with their worldly, ungodly ways, David says. But here's what he knows about them. They're not happy. They're not content. Church, I think you recognize this too. What breaks our heart about many people who don't know God is they may have some temporary happiness, but deep down they do not know God and they are not satisfied. They do not have peace. They will not be happy forever. They do not know the love of God. And David says their sorrows will only multiply. I know you probably know somebody right now who's far from God 
And you know that things just aren't going to get better until they come to God. This is what David is aware of. I had a conversation this week with an adult who asked me to come and talk about a young person. And I said, you think you can help? I said, I don't know if I can help. I said, I mean, I'll try, but I don't know if I can help here. When somebody has their focus on that, and they don't want to focus on what I'm encouraging them to focus on, things just aren't going to get better. Do you understand that about life? We can't run away from God walking in disobedience, looking for pleasures in other things, and think that all of a sudden my sorrows are going to go away. They won't. David's right on the money here. Your sorrows are going to multiply. Two wrongs don't make a right. Don't think that they will. There's only one way to get back on track. That's to turn to God, set your eyes toward Him, ask Him for forgiveness. David's aware of this. Matthew Henry, speaking about this, says, They that multiply their gods multiply their griefs. They multiply their gods, they multiply their griefs to themselves. For whosoever thinks that one god is too little will also find that two gods is too many, and yet hundreds of gods is not enough. Is that not the life of so many people that you and I know? One god is too little. I can't just live for God. I have to live for everything else. Yet two is too many. So now I try to live for everything. And even people who say they know Jesus have so many other gods in their lives of things that own them. David points out that their sorrows will multiply. If your life is filled with sorrow or you're sorrowful even this morning, would you learn today from the Word of God and say, no, I want to set my eyes back on God. There's only one way to follow after Christ. That is to set your eyes on Him and run. You don't backpedal into the kingdom of God. You can't. Put your eyes on Him and go. Watch your sorrows become less. Then in verse 5, he shifts back away from that and he will hardly mention it again. And David comes strong. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. David is confessing that to him, God is his everything. He is indeed his treasure. He is the thing that he holds on to most tightly. Yes, he has family. Yes, he has this. Yes, he has jobs and responsibilities. And we know David to be doing those well at times. But there is one thing that supersedes everything else in his life that he holds tightly to, and it is God. He calls him his chosen portion and his cup. And then he declares to God that you hold my lot. My life goes nowhere apart from the grace of God. That's what he's saying. We know this in the Bible to be a declaration that we hear all the time. Psalm 73, in a very strong way, says this very thing. It says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Listen, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph, in Psalm 73, is confessing that even when my life and my heart and my flesh are failing me, God is my portion and my strength. This is what David is declaring. 
David is familiar with people who are having a life full of sorrows and they've, they've run after other things and their sorrows are multiplying. So he confesses in the face of that, you are my chosen portion, my cup, you hold my light. Have you ever said that your life's about God? Have you ever made the declaration that your life is about Jesus? Have you ever had to set your, your kids down and explain why you do things some ways and why you don't do things some other ways? It's because our lives are about Jesus. This is why we don't do this. and This is why we do this. Jesus is Lord. He's God. We're going to meet Him face to face one day. And when that time comes, we're going to be ready for it. We're going to be excited for it. This week, as I watch the news and read the news and think about life, and I found myself driving in the car this week saying this to myself over and over again. I'm, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I am. I'm ready. I know I've got kids. It's going to be awesome if they grow up and they're happy and healthy and get married. And I know being a grandkid, a grandparent is awesome. And I know there's all that stuff. I want to see them go to high school and try out for a team and make it or not make it. I want to, I want to see all that happen. But you know what? i got a bigger desire than that. And that's God. And I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I am. I was saying that to myself this week in the car. I'm ready. I'm ready for Him to come back. David, with great confidence, says, The Lord's my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. And then look what he says in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David is aware that God's blessed his life. His life has fallen into a good place. Pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Some of you have such blessing all over your lives. Some of you know that God has been so good to you. And you've yet to come to the point where you surrender all out to Him and say, I just want to give it back. I just want to give it back. I want to become like a mirror and just reflect it. I want to bounce God's goodness to me, back off of me, to Him. That's what... David is saying. It's neat to hear somebody say, if my life has fallen into pleasant places. Do you remember in Psalm 23 where he says, you lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you remember at the end of Psalm 23, verse 6, where he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Well, obviously you know that that doesn't mean that your life's going to be all good. That's never been the case for anybody. What it does mean, though, is that when I'm aware of God's blessing on my life, surely His goodness and mercy are in my life. David is having one of those moments where he says... I've got a beautiful inheritance. I'm going to heaven. I'm a child of God. I know what He's doing with our people. He is saving my people. God is our God. He is our Father. He is our King. David's aware of this. Sometimes we need to sit back and be mindful of His blessing. 
Verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David goes off praising God now for, for who God is and the way God takes care of him and the way he's focused on God. He understands that he needs God to preserve him, yet he rejoices and worships and praises God because God is. God has preserved David. He has answered his prayer. David is focused on God. Notice here, we have in verses 7 through 10, he says, My heart. He says, My heart again. He says, My heart instructs me. He then he says, My heart, my heart. He says, My whole being. Imagine that. I told you that John MacArthur said in verse 2 that I have no good apart from you, is referring to his well being. Here he says, My whole being. My whole being rejoices. Everything about me rejoices. My naps are good. My pay is good. My life is good. My health is good. My family is good. My circumstances are good. Even though it may not be good from a worldly perspective, God has His hand in the middle of them. And my whole being rejoices. I'm content in who He is. It is well with my soul, you might sing. My whole being rejoices. My heart is glad. He goes on, he says, my flesh my flesh dwells secure. I know what's going to happen to my life, to my body. I know I'll be given a new body in heaven. I know I'll never cry once I get there. I know I'll be at peace and I'll be happy forever because of my hope in God. My soul, he says. Verse 10, he says, You'll not abandon my soul to Sheol, to death, to corruption. You won't let me see it. You are a saving God. David declares. And yet, while David is declaring here who God is to him, the New Testament teaches us here that this is about Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, we have the Apostle Peter preaching. This is that first sermon at Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. I'm at verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, concerning who? Jesus says this I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Peter quotes here in Acts chapter 2 that this passage in Psalm 16 that David's writing about is talking about Jesus. The reason why David is confident of his relationship with God and the reason why his prayer to God has preserved me and the reason why David knows he will be preserved is because God has a Savior that He has sent in Jesus that they killed, but God raised Him up so that you and I would be confident, sure, strong, no matter what the world may do to us, and no matter how mad we've messed up, if we will turn our eyes back to Christ, run to Him and say, God, would You forgive me of my sins? Would You pour out Your love on me? Wash me clean through Your mercy and grace? He will. And David is aware of that here in Psalm 16. Later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, Paul quotes the same passage and says it's about Jesus. In the book of Acts, you have Peter saying Psalm 16 is about Jesus. You have Paul saying that Psalm 16 is about Jesus. It's 1335 in the book of Acts if you're taking notes. No wonder David is so pumped here and focused on God. He is aware that when he is close to God, he is strong because God is His refuge, as He asked in verse 1. God is His security, His foundation. That is reason to be rejoicing. That is reason to say, I'm glad. Now that I think about it, the times when I'm most glad are not when I just happen to have a good lucky day. But rather on the times when I know that I'm close to God. I know who God is. I know who God is to me. I know, who God, I know how God treats me, how He feels about me. I know how God deals with my sins. And I know that He loves me. Those are the things that make me say, I'm glad. I want to ask you, do you ever say, I'm glad? Do you ever feel like your whole being rejoices? A couple years ago, we had a big-time athlete as a part of our church. Jared Swapshire, who was a basketball player from St. Louis, came to the University of Louisville and played basketball here in Louisville. Now he's playing as a pro basketball player overseas in the Czech Republic. Jared Swapshire is a great guy, a man of God truly. He was a part of our church for about two years, and then he moved on. One time a couple years ago, we had a luncheon here for all young people. I've never forgotten it. And we asked Jared and his wife, they're married now with a child, we asked Jared and his wife to, to just come and talk about their relationship with Jesus and, and also to talk about their lives. And Jared did that. And Jared's great at speaking and, and being used by God. People started asking questions and that was really cool. We were downstairs, we'd just eaten. I've never forgotten this. Jared kept saying, he said it several times, he said, I've just come to learn and I want you young people to know it too. God's way is the best way. He kept saying it. God's way is the best way. When your money is low and you're stressed out about money, can you tell yourself that God's way is the best way? When your husband is grumpy, like Val's husband often is, can you remind yourself that God's way is the best way? When your kids are acting up like all of them do, can you remind yourself that God's way is the best way? When the circumstances of life don't seem to seem, don't seem to be 
what we thought they should be. Do you know that God's way is the best way? David is recalling this now. He ends Psalm 16 with verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. Perhaps your biggest problem is you think you know the way life's supposed to go. Some of y'all already have your path planned out and every time it deviates two inches, you stress out. What if you don't know the path of your life, but only God does? Could you confess Psalm 1611? Would you put it on a bookmark or on a postcard and stick it on your mirror where you brush your teeth and every morning say, I don't know where this day is going, but God does. God, make it known to me. Psalm 1611. Be a follower of Jesus instead of trying to be somebody who's trying to do this for your life and hoping God blesses it. Trust in Christ and say, take me. He says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. In other words, David doesn't know where his life's going, but if God's going to take him, he'll be joyful. It's the presence of God that brought joy, not where life goes. What if life tanks, but God takes you there? Will you have joy? What if life gets blessed and you become a millionaire and you win the lottery? I know y'all are playing it. But what if God's not there? And you don't have joy. What if life falls apart? What if J.J., Eli, Noah, Carolina, and Liliana turn out to be a wreck? Am I going to be unjoyful? Why don't we let God take us where He wants to take us? And let's just make sure we're holding on. By prayer to the One who preserves, saying at Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's here. God's in our home. It may not be the type of home you were looking for. God's in our workplace. It may not be the type of workplace you were looking for, but He's there. He's with me. He's at my right hand. There are pleasures there with Him. There is joy in my heart because I came to work today with God. And it may not be the way that I had thought it would go, but I've got joy because I'm close to God. Jim Elliott was that great missionary killed by the Indians in Ecuador, South America in the 1950s. One of his great quotes says, I have found that the most extravagant dreams of boyhood have not surpassed the great experience of being in the will of God. Amen. Amen. I had a childhood that was out of this world. I swung on vines and caught turtles in the creek and played ball every single day, played ball at the bus stop, played ball when I got off the bus, played ball till Dad called me in at dark. It was good. It ain't nothing compared to being close to Jesus. And so now my goal with these kids, these five kids, is to show them that there's a joy in my life that's bigger than all the others. And it's God. And David's aware of this. It's Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. Church, would you surrender all of those worldly hopes and false securities? Would you get rid of those? Would you admit today that you're only going to multiply your sorrows according to verse 4? Charles Spurgeon says, near the roots of our self-love is where all our sorrows lie. Near the roots of our self-love. Would you just admit that today, that David is right on the money, not only for his life, but for yours too? Would you confess Christ as Lord? 
And would you cry out, God, preserve me. I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. And let's be a stronger church because of it. People committed to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Psalms. Thank You, God, for Psalm 16. God, help us to have a joy that surpasses everything else. It comes from Your presence. If You're not there, I don't have joy. If You're there, I do have joy. God, make us those who know You. Move in our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.